Use your head. I know what you think. It's thinking like that that keeps the world the way it is. Especially when you're thinking of a master plan. Big Med, tell us what's on your mind. Welcome to the Mind of Med podcast. I'm your host, Big Med. Welcome to episode number one. Thank you for joining me because this is big for me. I, I have been procrastinating for like the last six months. I've been trying to put this podcast together, put it out, but you know, between being married, uh, having a child, and uh, having a whole syndicated radio show that I produce, trying to find time to do this has been kind of tough, but dang it, all the excuses are gone now. I told people it's coming out today, this Tuesday, so that's what we're doing, all right? For those who don't know me, I've been in radio producing or being on air for the last 13 years. Uh, I've been helping people produce their own podcast, and it's just... This is time to do mine. You know, the, the best way to show what you can do is to do it your damn self, right? So that's what I'm doing. In this episode today, um, I'm talking to my buddy, Dr. Aldewan Tart, who's a trans psychologist. Uh, at the end of 2018, we had a conversation about toxic masculinity because that was a very hot topic uh, at the end of 2018 when it came to just men and women's relationship. I heard toxic masculinity a lot. Uh, and then... On top of that, because this past weekend, I got the greatest gift of give, of having surviving our Kelly docuseries over the weekend, that six-episode, three-day event that we had on Lifetime, and just everyone's talking about it. And for my people that live in Chicago, I promise you, this is the last time I'm going to talk about it. So Dr. Aldewan Tartan talked to us about toxic masculinity and about surviving R. Kelly because he had a lot to say about about it uh, from a psychologist uh, standpoint. And so we're going to get into that. And then lastly on this episode, because we having a lot of toxic masculinity, R. Kelly talk, I decided we need to have a little black girl magic in this. And this past weekend, Regina King won a Golden Globe for Best Supporting Actress in a film for her role in If Beale Street Could Talk. So I talked to her about two or three weeks ago, right after she got the nomination for this Golden Globe, about... The movie of Beale Street Could Talk, diversity when it comes to directors in Hollywood, and just the hot streak that she's been on the last uh, decade, it seems like. So all that's coming up in this podcast. I, again, appreciate you tuning in, downloading, subscribing, because uh, every Tuesday you're getting a new one. All right? So here we go. It's the Mind of Med podcast, episode one. Toxic masculinity. That's what we want to talk about. Dr. Tart, how are you feeling today, man? Hey, I'm blessed. I called you, and I'm like, hey, man, have you heard of... Toxic masculinity, and you literally and you said to me, "No, I haven't," which kind of surprised me because, like I said, you're a professional, and I've been hearing this term uh, for about a year just on social media. Hashtag toxic masculinity, and I've heard it uh, surrounding the the situation that happened in Chicago at Mercy Hospital, where the man shot his ex fiance because of a, a ring, money, or whatever the situation was. He he killed her um, and, and killed two others uh, due to that, and then. You had John Gray, who was talking about birthing his wife, birthing him or dealing with his issues, and they worked their way through that. What is toxic masculinity to you? All right, first, let's be clear that it's not a diagnosis. So when you were calling, I thought you were looking at it like it's an actual diagnosis. But what it is is when being a man somehow contaminates or hurts the people in your life. The man that killed his fiance, that's mental illness. We don't know what was going on with him, but had he taken care of whatever was going on in his life, she would still be alive. That's what we hope. That's what we hope and pray. The second example, when you start talking about, you know, John Gray and his wife, he's talking about the times in a, a marriage where a man has to rely on his wife 
to tell him the truth to be better. And we have to be able to handle that. I just feel because of the to- because everyone's using this this tag now, toxic masculinity, that it, it's a way for, for women to say that they don't want to have to deal with men and their issues. You know, you know, it's like, you know, they want a full grown man who has no issues. They don't they don't have to birth them. They don't have to uh, uh, mother them. And and they they if you look at these comments in these in, in these in these social media aspects of things, they haven't they really do not want to deal with men and their issues right now. <laughs> man, I saw the comments. You sent them to me. I went <laughs> I read the full article. Right. You know, uh, here's the reality of what I see in my office every day is that there are men with issues. We have real issues and we are not getting them taken care of. And we are relying on our wives, our moms, our girlfriends, sisters to be our therapists. And women are tired of it. So the women that are commenting on this have been through this, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. They've been with a man that refused to go get help for his depression, his anxiety, his drinking problem, his anger. He can't hold down a job. So she's having to be able to hold down the whole family. You know, and so when we don't define masculinity with weakness, being that we're our strength is perfected in our weakness by admitting we don't know everything and we expect our wives and our girlfriend to be able to handle that, that's unfair. Right. And so so just a perspective. Mm-hmm. So women are dating guys that have substance abuse issues, infidelity issues. They they are cheating and the woman's having to deal with that Mm -hmm. and she's tired of that and he's not able to be ambitious or follow through on what he's supposed to and she's wanting to move and do things meanwhile he's being insecure about her getting a new position her business launching but he won't go and and get a mentor he won't consult with a coach and so i think that women that are coming from position of hurt are saying we're tired of being the mama. Right. Like birth, I have to birth my husband? Right. Who takes care of me? Right, and, and let's stop right there because I think that was the, the main thing because, first of all, knowing John Gray and Aventer, you know, they're a great couple, right? And then, but a lot of people were asking, well, what about you, sis? You know what I'm saying? It's like you went through eight years or how many years of, of birthing John, but what was that doing to you? And so that's my question to you for, you know, you've seen couples come into your office at, that women that are, are, that are helping their man get through whatever issues they're getting through, but it's having an adverse effect on them. What do you say about that? There's a fine line between being a wife and an enabler. So a wife is someone that's going to require you to be your best, but also expect you to be imperfect. You're not Jesus Christ. And you all talk through it and you all work through it and you all pray through it and you develop together. You don't, you don't expect him to be perfect. You allow him to develop. Enabling is when your man has a habit, an issue, a problem, and you don't require him to get help for it, and it ends up hurting you in the end. For instance, alcoholism. You don't require him to go to AA, and he's being verbally abusive to you. He's losing his job, causing financial strain on you. It's causing problems with the kids because the kids don't want to be around All right. So that's enabling. And so as a wife, sometimes you're afraid to kind of rock the boat. Right. But your husband needs you to be able to say, this does not work for me. I love you, but not this addiction. Do you think that women don't even want to do that? They don't feel like they should do that, that they're like, I think they want their man to be able to 
you know, identify the problem and fix it. Like they don't want to be the ones to tell them, hey, this is the problem. You need to fix it because I know within my marriage, my wife will will if there's a problem, she's going to speak up. She don't hold her tongue for nothing. And it's up to me to decide whether I'm going to listen to her and take her advice and, and fix the issue that needs to be fixed. Or am I going to you know, just do whatever I want to do and ignore what she has to say, which is not going to be advantageous for our relationship <laughs> at all. We have to listen to what they say, man. They usually have some wisdom. You know, when we don't listen and we don't listen to our rib, it usually does not end well. You know, John Gray's wife told him not to go visit the, the White House. He listened <laughs> and he had to deal with it. So I think that w- when we start talking about the women that listen to John Gray's comments, mm-hmm. they've dated different kinds of men. Okay? Right. So you have the woman that has been holding it down and she's never really had her knight in shining armor. She's having to raise, um, she's having to build a man, like build a bear. She's having to build a man over and over and over right, and over again. Right. And here, Pastor John Gray is saying, that's what you're supposed to do? Absolving the man of the responsibility to handle his business? Then I think there's another woman, like Mrs. Gray, that realizes that while her husband is super successful, super talented, he has seasons where he does not make the best decisions. And, and part of marriage is helping your husband when he's imperfect. But the responsibility is for him to respond and to be able to cover her, take care of her, and make her feel secure in a relationship as well. She shouldn't have to do social work love forever. Right. And so here's my question for for maybe some of the ladies. How do they know when enough's enough? The ones that say, I don't want a baby. I don't want to have to mother my, my husband. I don't want to mother my, my man. What is the, the limit for them where they can say, you know, enough's enough. I've done my part. I've tried, you know, but this isn't working. Man, you know what women struggle with? in my uh, observation, mm-hmm. they, they struggle with being selfish. I mean, in a healthy way. Mm-hmm. They, they take care of the husband, take care of the kids, put themselves last, right. and they're tired of it. Right. And so the problem is the husband thinks that's the real marriage. Yeah, you wash the dishes, you take care of the bills, you plan all the vacation, you plan the dates, you do everything. And when she finally wakes up and says, this doesn't work for me, the man thinks she's tripping. And so the responsibility for the wife is to be able to communicate how she feels real time. Okay. I'll give you a good example. Uh, I came in the door and my wife was like, you know what? You're going to give Trinity, who's our two-year-old, a bath tonight. I was like, how you figure? (laughs) I just came in (laughs) from work for 10 hours. Right, right. I walk in the door and the first thing you're saying is do more work. Right. And you've been here for like three hours? Right. I mean, why in the world would I do that? She said, meanwhile, Aldewan, because my wife's from Inglewood, okay? She said, meanwhile, on the other other side of this marriage, I picked up our oldest daughter, Raquel, from volleyball. She forgot her knee pads. I had to go to Walmart to get some more. Go back and pick her up, bring her home, cook dinner, put give Trinity uh, her, her medication. She hasn't been feeling well, mm-hmm. take care of my job, do a conference call. Right. And you walk in the door and I give Trinity a bath every day since she's been born. <laughs> At that point I realized, uh, yeah, I'm the slacker. I'm the slacker in this marriage. And I, I went up there and gave her a bath. So as a man, there's nothing unmanly about it needing help. 
Okay. It says in the Bible that plans fail to succeed based on the wisdom of advisors. Right. And we need to ask more people what we need to do to be better. We don't have to figure out everything. That's toxic masculinity that you're supposed to be a, a millionaire, uh -huh. a great father. Right. Uh, wonderful in, in, in bed uh -huh. all, all the time, every day and meet, meet, meet her needs for romance, mm -hmm. <laughs> be able to help the kids with homework, take care of mama, mm -hmm. plan for retirement, mm -hmm. be a great entrepreneur. It's too much. And so we need to ask other people and allow them to help us. Don't let what affects us hurt our family. Good, a good example is if we went to the door mm -hmm. and we saw someone with a knife right. and they rang the doorbell, would we let them in? Probably not. Right. But what if that person at the door is us? What if it's our alcoholism? What if it's our financial insecurities and we don't want to go see a financial planner? Right. What if it's our depression? Mm -hmm. What if it's our insecurities about you doing better than me at work and when the bill comes, I have to slide it to you because it's not Ooh, in my budget. Right. Man, that's tough. It is. So we have to be able to rely on other men and women to be able to build us up so that we can be the best husbands, the best boyfriend, the best business owners possible. That was great insight on toxic masculinity, and we're going to continue our conversation with Dr. Tart as we go along to talk about surviving R. Kelly. But first, let me shout out one of the supporters of the show. For anybody out there that's about to go out hang out with friends or a big event with friends, make sure you download Tip Off the app. Tip Off is a multiplayer game which can be played in person or remotely. Users will divide into teams and enter a game room code to take turns tipping each other off to the keyword without saying any of the five words listed on the card. Each team member will have a turn as a player and as the hater. The player describes the keywords while the hater guards the player on each card to make sure they do not violate the rules. It's basically taboo for the black delegation. All right. And it's a fun game to play on your phone. I've downloaded it. I've played it. And these are two black women who have created this app, created this game. Please go out and support Tip Off. Download it on the App Store or Google Play. All right. Now let's continue our conversation with Dr. Tart about surviving R. Kelly. It's more than just, I believe, R. Kelly, Dr. Tart. I believe that it is um, something that's going on, a discussion that needs to be had, especially in black families, about what this predatory, um, you know, these predatory actions can do to damage future generations as well. My first reaction is as a, a father of two daughters. I mean, I was gusted. I couldn't even look at it as a psychologist at first because I was just blown away by just the number of cover-ups, the amount of women that came out, and just how much was known behind the scenes to be able to stop this man and how he was able to get away with it. But I can tell you, man, that as a psychologist and every mental health professional, including social services as well as schools and teachers, they know about this because we know that by the time children are age 7 to 13, that one out of seven has been a victim of sexual abuse. Wow. And by the time they turn 17, that number jumps to one in four, maybe even one in three. And the shocking thing about that, that's only cases that have been reported, not the ones that we see like on the R. Kelly document where these women are not reporting this. So what's, what's, what's happening is people are pulling the sheets up to the dirty little secret of child predators. We've never had this up close and personal with someone that we used to adore when it comes to R. Kelly, and I think that's what has people shocked. So when it comes to just let's let's you know, okay, let's forget R. Kelly for a second. 
let's just go into okay. into the generalities of the of the situation. Let's go to the families that say, you know, w- when we know something's going on, we know this uncle isn't all the way right. You know what I'm saying? Don't leave your nieces or nephews or your kids with this uncle. Don't let them be around the uncle. Um, I've heard uh, from several people like, well, you know, young girls shouldn't be in grown men's faces. That you know, I've heard all these ways of trying to protect their children by telling them, don't do this, don't do that, keep them away from their uncle. But we're not handling that that family issue because there's no therapy, there's no anything. The only thing that we know how to do is sweep it under the rug and keep things moving and tell people to stay away from these people. As a family, as families go go through these things, how should they handle this? This is this is really gonna sadden people, but I have to keep it real. We assume that most people have functional families and that they have moms and dads that actually care about their children. And that's just not the case. Social services across the nation is at an all-time high of the number of kids they're having to take into state custody because their parents don't monitor them. So here's how this breaks down. Suppose you have a mom that has a drug addiction. She is pimping her own child. She is not there to monitor her child and therefore men come in and out of the house, or women for that nature, because R. Kelly was was abused by his aunt, according to his own admission. And we have people that are coming in that are predators that have easy access to children where the parents are not present. And we're also going to talk about fathers that are not in the home, fathers that have uh, lifestyles that are dangerous. So we're talking about drug dealers. We're talking about gangsters. We're just talking about men that are unavailable. Maybe they're depressed as well, and you have no awareness of who is around your child because you're not even aware of what's going on with you yourself. And the second thing is that what we're really talking about here is we're talking about sexual exploitation. I used to be on the task force here in Georgia to prevent sexual exploitation of teens. And I can tell you at one point, Georgia was top, top three. Chicago has always been in there when it starts talking about sexual exploitation or um, pimping. And so what we're looking at is that the documentary is really talking about R. Kelly hanging out at McDonald's, hanging out at schools, High schools. Mm-hmm. and taking advantage of children who uh, don't have any defense against him and may parents may not uh, be there for the kids. So let me break it down just a little bit more. So you're a kid that not being taken care of. You've been what psychologists called um, neglected. So you go into the category of being neglected, meaning your emotional needs are not being taken care of, your physical needs are not being taken care of, educational needs are not being taken care of. And unfortunately, that's a percentage of children in every single state. Well, here comes someone like an R. Kelly or one of his handlers, and they promise to get your hair done. They, they um, take care of you. They give you money. They provide for your needs before they ever touch you, and they build this relationship like you never had with your mom or dad, and that's what sets up the exploitation. So when when so we take care, we look at that we look at the uh, the dynamic of of hiding things of maybe the parents not being all the way there. So let let's go on to the young to the young ladies now, um, where you know I, I've seen people when it comes to you know defending R. Kelly, if you will, talking about you know well these girls are fast or these girls they should know better. Um, there's some girl people that are saying well the seventeen the sixteen seventeen year olds they should know better. I mean the fourteen year old we understand that's kind of crazy, but you know the sixteen seventeen they know they know they know better. They're probably promiscuous anyways. So when you hear th- those people saying using that as a defense for R. Kelly, uh, what are your thought process uh, for for that? Because you have daughters, so I, I know this is this kind of hits at home uh, for you a, a little bit uh, harder. It shows how sick we are. The people that say that are sick. 
I know it's a very strong comment, but let me break it down because I don't think that they're conscious of what they're saying. So basically what they're saying is that a 16 or 17 year old should never be starstruck, should never want to have her needs met, should never be um, uh, open to someone giving them money and pretending to be friendly. So they're saying a 16 or 17 year old should never see a big time rock star and see him as a predator. <laughs> so they're blaming women, they're blaming teen girls, and what it shows is that people don't have any respect or any knowledge of developmental levels for children. You can't even get a driver's license until you're 16, 17, 18 year olds in state. And so we expect these same 16 and 17 year olds not to be mesmerized by the rock star. When you have people that are grown that are defending R. Kelly simply because he's saying, I believe I can fly and he was on the hit charts. And so what do you think a 16 to 17 year old is gonna say when she has an R. Kelly or someone from his entourage say, well, come over. She's thinking, all right, we're gonna have a good time. She's thinking we're gonna have fun. We're going to, he's gonna give me money. He's gonna take care of my hair. You heard in the documentary, one of the girls like, this is your shot. You right. better go ahead and take it or I will. So that's how teens are. They're impressionable. And advertising agencies know this. Big companies know this. And that's why they market fun to sell Coca-Cola, market fun to sell candy, market fun to sell clothes. And so here you have this entertainer that is taking advantage of these children and we're blaming the children. That shows how sick we are as a society that we would say you should recognize a predator. And it also absolves the adult. We're saying all the responsibility should be on a teen girl. You should never be in the face of an older man. Why is that older man recruiting you at the middle and high school? Why is that older man picking you up at a McDonald's? Why is this man marrying someone who's 15 years old? Why is this man urinating in someone's mouth that's a child? Because he's sick and he's a predator and he's a pedophile. So if you defend R. Kelly, you are a pedophile yourself or you're an enemy of children. And it's just that basic. So let's go to the adult in this. And I, and I wanted, and, and I'm glad you went there. So when you have somebody who, as R. Kelly has admitted to have been assaulted and, you know, of course people use that to defend him. Well, he was assaulted as a, you know, as a child, never had therapy for it. When you have this adult who, who's been through all these things, never been through, through therapy, what do you do for, for those people? Like, how do you, how do you help them? Especially when you see something in them that, that doesn't seem right. Well, we know that hurt people hurt people. At the same time, it is a choice and a decision. You know that you have problems because I don't want to sit up here and make it seem like because you've been abused that you're going to abuse others. Now, we know we know the link that most people that abuse have been abused. But what we don't talk about is those that chose to go get treatment. R. Kelly has the means, he has the money, and he has the access to any therapist that he wants to see to be able to change his behavior. But he doesn't want to change his behavior. He wants to choose to be a pedophile. So the first thing is that you have to want to get help. The second thing that happens is that you have to separate yourself from your temptation. If you know that you have a problem, you have to separate yourself being around children until you can get that disorder under control. R. Kelly does not want to do that. And there are a number of people in our families that don't want to get that help. But here's the thing that you talked about earlier, Matt, is that we know that it's uncle so-and-so. We know that it's aunt so-and-so. We know that it's uh, a peer. A lot of times we see it where there's a 15-year-old ch child and then his victim or her victim is 11 years old. But we don't want them to get caught up in the... The, the penal system. We don't want to get them caught up in juvenile court. We don't want to get them caught up right. and labeled as a sex offender. Mm -hmm. So we let them contaminate our entire families. Think about what it takes 
for school officials to tell you it's one in seven kids by the time they are 13 years old. Think about how much abuse is going on on a regular basis for one in seven. Right. That means it's not that many people we don't know about. That means that families are complicit in these cover-ups and these secrets. And what's happening is that hurt people are hurting people. R. Kelly talked about being abused. His brother talked about being abused. Where was his mother and father? Why did they not get treatment? Why didn't they take care of the person that was abusing all of these children versus actually multiplying the sexual predators? And that's why we have the epidemic. And that's why I'm glad that this documentary is shining a light on something that mental health professionals have been begging to get more attention for years. I want to go into now talking about the parents and what can you as a parent do now to prevent? Um, you know, obviously, you know, you know, it's one thing to tell them to stay out of grown men's faces. It's one thing to do these, what, but what can we tell our daughters, our sons, uh, you know, now about what to look for, you know, what to stay away from, you know, what is the conversation that we're having with our children now? Number one, you have to have a close relationship with your children. When you send your children out into this world hungry for attention, they are privy to not only uh, pedophiles, but they're privy to peer pressure, drugs, alcohol, you name it, because they're looking for attention. They're looking for connection. We know that one of the causal links between people joining gangs is that looking for a sense of family. So one of the things that we have to do as families is stop being so busy. Stop being so busy working two jobs and watching uh, TV and being on social media when we should be spending at least 15 minutes a day FaceTime with our children. All right. That's that's basic, because what we see is a number of children that are starving and that makes them open to any type of attention. It's it's like a teen girl that hasn't had any attention from her father. And so the first time there is a man, especially an older man who's able to take care of her needs it's easier for her to fall in love and be tricked because she's never felt something that strong in her life, which is why you see a lot of victims that don't feel like they've been victimized. They feel like they've been taken care of better than their own parents. Now, second thing you can do is that you have to have these conversations with your kids early on. You can't let them walk into this world eyes wide shut and you have to give them an age limit. You are not allowed to talk to boys two years older than you, uh, whatever, whatever your rules are, you are not as a, as a boy allowed to talk to girls two years younger than you are. If someone comes up to you and they offer you money, you do not accept it. If someone comes up to you, even if they're a megastar, you do not accept it. Number three, you put the trackers on your children's phone and you have to monitor their phone. We think that it's okay to allow our kids to have all this privacy on their phones. But think about it, it's unpoliced, it's unsupervised. Think about what adults do at work when there's no management, there's no supervision. And so we're allowing these kids to have their cell phones without us having the proper supervision. And so we have to supervise and then have the trackers on their phones so that we can track them at all times and know where they are. You know, going back to the documentary, because I, I, I definitely, my main thing with this conversation was to have the conversation about the black family when it comes to the situation. But when you watch the um, the documentary and you watch the, the enablers around um, around R. Kelly now, this is because this is a different level. You know, even when you have families and you have, you know, we enable because we're trying to protect them from going to jail or, or things like that. These guys are actually setting up meetings they're, they're, when, when that enabling is actually enabling them to find more victims so 
you know, when you see when you saw this, why do you think this was going on? Why do you think that that so many people were like allowing this to happen? It's got to be for me. It's like there's there's only so much R. Kelly being around him means to you for you to be okay with what he's doing. One man, and you know this. You know this is the real. We're assuming that R. Kelly is the only one who's sexually active with these teens. All right, Absolutely. there is right. a series. There's a whole team of pedophiles on R. Kelly's team. And then two, don't mess with the money. This is about power. And they feel like, okay, if we tell on R. Kelly, one, are they gonna believe us? Two, what dirt does he have on me? And then three, can this threaten my livelihood? So the people that have seen this in their life, they've seen this over and over time. And so it's become normalized. It's become normalized to the point where they feel like, okay, this happens, uh, someone's gonna do it. And they go out and they help R. Kelly to victimize these children because if they don't, they'll be kicked off the team and that messes with their pockets and their ability to make money. Mm. I believe in the documentary, one of the musicians, this happened to you know his family member and he stayed on as his musician. That's the thing is that this is not just about the parents. This is about the enablers and the team that are making this possible for R. Kelly and that's a disservice to R. Kelly because no one is friend enough to him to say, you need to get some help. And if you don't get help, I'll tell, I don't care if you fire me because this is not what you want to do. But when, as I'm saying that, you realize how ridiculous that is because people are not going to want to lose their job and they wouldn't work for R. Kelly if they had any sense of morals. And man, you know this being front and center in the entertainment industry. Mm. Unfortunately, this goes on behind the scenes. There right. is a lower level of morality in the entertainment business and so because the morals are so low anything goes we have a culture that allows kids to be um to be pimped to be exploited and sexually abused but i think even within the entertainment business i saw tank comment on this this is an all-time low yeah no it it, it is and, and i think it, and you kind of feel complicit in, in some sort of way like like i've told people that working in in chicago radio during the the trial and it, it felt like the 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 amendum the uh, for us was to not say anything about it don't talk about it you know like protect them you know what i'm saying that that you know because we we needed him f- for what we needed him for you know what i'm saying so it was a very weird situation to be in when you saw the video you saw what you saw and you're just like so why are we in in bed with him you know what i'm saying so it, it is a very like you said power manipulates things and and, and to close this thing off i just want uh, you to kind of talk to these families that are really big on keeping your family's secret secrets not to talk uh, the, the families that believe in if you just be quiet, you know what I'm saying? No one needs to know our business and, and keep it moving. But how damaging that is down the line. In psychology, we call that bystander apathy, where you watch something happen. And because it's not happening directly to you or you feel like you can fix it, you make the problem worse. Because think about what the kid is, is feeling. This is the part I want you to get. The kid is looking at mom and dad, aunt and uncle, whomever it is to help me. And when this, when I'm victimized and you don't help me, what message does that send to me about my self-worth? You're basically saying you can abuse me, you can threaten me, you can take advantage of me, but I can't tell. Or if I do tell you, you don't want to kick out dad because then we don't want to go into social services. Or we don't want to kick wow. out the boyfriend because he's paying the rent. Right. When you sit by and you do nothing, you are in bed with the devil. 
God is clear about wanting protection for his children. And, when, and as a parent, if you are protecting a boyfriend or you're protecting a girlfriend, a husband, a wife, or even if it's yourself, know that you are partnering in damaging your child and, and producing such negative self-esteem. And for those that are similar to R. Kelly, the, the culture to go and do this to other children because no one told when it happened to you. So why should R. Kelly have compassion for children when no one had compassion for him? And that's how you see people that can just be cold and you say, where's his heart? Well, he lost it when he was being <laughs> abused and victimized, but I'm not giving him a pass because we know that the people that have been victimized, they go and get treatment every day so they don't do that to their children. So realize that by not saying something, you are damaging your children for legacies. Man, I appreciate Dr. Tart for being with us today. Uh, make sure you follow him on Instagram at Dr. Tart. It's at D-R-T-A-R-T-T. And before we get to Regina King, I want to shout out some more Black Girl Magic and friends of the show, Ariel and Belle, who is a virtual destination for women who are looking for contemporary fashion-forward clothing that will reflect their customers' style, flair, and individuality. By creating a space for women who have created a voice for their sense of style, Ariel and Belle will be a top pick for their next closet favorite. So make sure you go check them out at arielandbell.com. You know, like Ariel and Belle from Disney movies. Yeah, that's how you spell it. A-R-I-E-L-A-N-D-B-E-L-L-E.com. Shout out to the Black-Owned Business. And now here's my conversation from a few weeks back with Regina King. On the line with me is Golden Globe nominee Regina King. How you doing? I'm wonderful. How are you? I'm doing amazing, Regina. I've had I've wanted to ask you this question for a while now. Since seeing your acceptance speech at the Emmys, I was shocked to see how surprised you were because I feel like you have kind of owned the Emmys the last few years and that you of all people should never be surprised when you win one. So can you tell me back to that night and why did you feel so surprised that you won the Emmy? Well, as for me is that with American crime, Mm -hmm. uh, the majority of the people on the uh, streets were, that saw that, that, that I, I can't encounter were white. So, um, I guess I felt like that was a, more of a stronger shot of a possibility. Okay. Um, with all of those, uh, nominations, you know, if you look at the women that I was nominated in their, with in their performances, you know, it was it was always top notch. You know, all the way from Gene Smart, Angela Bassett, Kathy Bates. You know, it was Sarah Paulson. You know, I've mm -hmm. I've been in categories with powerhouses. So, you know, that was also um, you know part of the surprise. But then with Seven Seconds, I really didn't speak to many people that weren't black that had seen Seven okay. Seconds. Not saying that they didn't. Right. Clearly, they did. But that just was not my experience. So I was just really excited to just, again, be recognized in a category with um, some tremendous performances and to wear a pretty dress and was ready to go to <laughs> the after parties and talk business and get the next thing popping off. Man, you know? I, I, I love it. <laughs> and, and, let, and let's get into the next thing. Um, uh, this new movie, If Beale Street Could Talk, is based off the James Baldwin novel, and it's directed by Barry Jenkins, who also directed Movie the, of the Year Moonlight. What was it about this script and your character, Sharon, that made you want to do this film? Well, I mean, you get a email and you know it opens up with 
um, Barry Jenkins is um, uh, in pre-production to do his next film, and it is a James Baldwin book adaptation. You just stop right there. Right, like, right. You don't, like, hold your breath. Like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. I don't care what book. Right. I don't care if it's an essay. I don't care if it's a reenactment of an interview. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so <laughs> the combination of those two, um, you know, just it's kind of like that had me at hello moment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I read the script and I thought it was, um, great, but I had not read the book and it was really important to me to read James Baldwin's book before I sat down and meet with Barry, because every interview I'd seen with Barry, I was just always really impressed by him, impressed, uh, because he was so smart. So he is so smart. So, um, socially conscious and also charming. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, I had all of the information so that when I was in the conversation, I wouldn't have to act smart. So, um, I, uh, read the book and we had a FaceTime call that lasted like, that was supposed to be like 20 minutes and it ended up lasting like an hour. Those are great. And, uh, here we are. And and this movie, I'm really excited about all the award buzz it's getting right now. It's basically about um, a, a woman your, who plays your daughter, uh, whose fiance is locked up on bogus charges, and what the family's trying to do, the two families trying to do to get him out. Um, just talk to me yeah. a little bit about the about the film. Oh gosh, um, where do I start without <laughs> giving oh, way too much. things away? Right? Yeah, you don't want to give away too much. Um, well, the good news is. Uh, uh, Hopefully, a lot of people who have, um, who are fans of Baldwin's work, mm-hmm. will have been wouldn't won't be like me and would have already read the book. But I will say, you don't have to have read the book to still appreciate the movie. Okay. I think that you will appreciate the movie even more if you read the book. Got it. Um, but um, it's uh, Tish and Fani, played by Kiki Lane and Stefan James, who are just uber talented young actors um they're the 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 focal point they're right. the lovers that the love story is about them but they're in the center of several love stories that are going on around them that are emanating love to uh make sh- sure with the, with the hope uh that their love won't be broken by exterior things that are trying to break them apart. Okay. And um it takes place in nineteen seventy four and the um issues that Tish and Fani are up against unfortunately are the same issues that uh black Americans are up against today. Right, right. So uh, there'll be a lot of familiar uh themes mm-hmm. for people but it's a reminder of how far we've gotten as black people, even with a foot in our neck, you know, we still find time to, we still find a way to laugh. We still find a way to dance. And you, I just feel like even if I wasn't in this film, when I watched the film, I was like, wow, I'm really seeing us. That's, that's, that's the family that I know 
those, that, that's the love that, you know, su- supported and surrounded me all my life. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, you Barry does shots where they're really tight shots and you see Stefan's face and just to, to look at that black man and just see yourself. You know, my son was really moved when he saw it. He said he, he said he's never felt like he's seen seen him. He's never looked at a film and saw himself. And, and, and you know, this was the first time he did. And and the thing about this movie is because you know it's it's I'm not going to say rare. I mean it is rare to see uh, an Afri- a, a predominantly African American cast in a love story get this much love. You know what I'm saying? Uh, yes. From from yes. from the award. And, and and the thing is, Barry Jenkins. I feel like he has a blueprint or something like that because Moonlight. Was uh, was a relationship the same way, yeah, very the same similar. way, and so I'm just like, does he have the blueprint? Is there something about his style of directing that is is, is just making these these films like really noticeable? Absolutely, one hundred percent. I mean, you know, you will see uh, um, when people see Bill Street, if they see Moonlight, they will uh, see Barry's hand. Okay. They will see the language that he speaks, but they are two totally different films. Got it. So people, if they're thinking they're going in and it's going to be like a moonlight, it isn't. Okay. But will you be able to be aware that um, Barry is at the helm? Yes. Now, we've you know seen several strong black women roles on TV and film, and I believe that you play that role extremely well, like from Southland to your three mm-hmm. roles in American Crime. But I've heard you talk about mm-hmm. how to bring out the vulnerable black woman, and I believe your role in Seven mm-hmm. Seconds and If Beale Street Could Talk demonstrate those kind of roles. Like how how are you able mm-hmm. to bring out those emotions on the screen so well? Like like what's going through your mind when when you're trying to bring out the vulnerability of the black woman and put it on screen for everybody to see? Oh wow! I mean, you know, I'm not using any uh, tactics or mm-hmm. you know the Stella Adler method or anything <laughs> like that. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah, <laughs> uh, but it's not that you deep. know I. <laughs> <laughs> because it because it all actuality is way deeper. You okay. know what I mean? Uh-huh. It's, it's it's that I am. I first and foremost, I am a black woman. Right. You know, I came into this world a black uh, female baby. You know, and um, so my experience in America is is and always will be a black American woman. So all of that is living through all of my performances and the subject matter in which I'm playing. It's my job as an actor to channel that and, um, become whoever she is. Uh, it's finding that's as actors, you know, we're, we, that's what we love. That's our art for our, our art form is to become, different things to be chameleons but to make that to be a chameleon and make that performance believable i think we find a bit of ourselves in that character not saying that we are that character but we're tapping into who we truly are to make that character believable and uh, my last question here, I talked to Stephen uh, Capel Jr who directed Creed 2 and he talked about how when more African American directors get a shot they they are able to bring on more African-American uh, filmmakers to work with them. With you being a director as well, do you see a recent shift in the number of black directors you see in Hollywood and um, on film and on TV? Um, Not big enough of a shift. Okay. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, the very, sm- the, the percentage, the numbers are 
so small uh, as far as the the numbers going up. Mm-hmm. They're, they're so small. So, you know, it's like you hear that question, and unfortunately, the amount of black auteurs, black creators out there versus the number that we're actually getting to see their work is a huge disparity between the two. Really? And, you know, we have so much writing on one project, you know, with one, you know, the same for uh, female directors. Mm -hmm. You know, if you, you know, you mess up one time, it kind of closes the door a bit for everybody else, you know, whereas it's not quite like that for white males. Right. You know, they can have a bomb after a bomb or have bad behavior and still continue to work. I mean, there's, you know, there are examples right now in movie theaters right now. Right. No, <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it at that. I, I, yeah. I, I completely understand. I appreciate the time uh, you've given to us and much success moving forward, uh, Regina. We really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Go see this movie. I'm telling you, you feel like you're leaving with a hug. Make sure you go support If Beale Street Could Talk, which is in theaters right now. Hopefully more awards are coming Regina King's way for her role in this movie. That's it. That is the show. I appreciate you guys listening to the podcast. Leave your comments. You can email me at mindofmedpod at gmail.com. Let me know what you think. I appreciate all of your support. Until next time, y'all be good. All right? Peace.